Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Dunn Street trains engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and we help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. And if you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need support with a legal issue, it can feel daunting. That's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping and guiding clients with their legal needs. They're here to help when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases and wills and estates planning. As Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, they have the local knowledge and the national network with experience that you can count on. To find out more, just go to their website, which is morrisblackburn.com.au. And then finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, visit their website, which is swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them both home and abroad. And we've been on the road a bit lately, so we've returned back home. And today we're going to be talking about the Australian Republican movement and their focus on eventually getting another referendum up in which we can then change our constitution so therefore we have a head of state that is from Australia and not some overseas monarch that passes it down through their bloodline, which in you say that out loud sounds absolutely weird. Um, so we're going to be talking to the National Youth Convener of the Australian Republican Movement, Michael Cooney, on today's show. And don't forget, uh, if you like the show, um, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and... Uh, don't forget to give us five stars on Apple Podcast when you're done listening uh, and leave us a review. And for all the updates, be sure to follow Dunn Street on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All right, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And joining me on the line, he is the National Youth Convener for the Australian Republican Movement. Uh, and given that we uh, celebrated the birthday of our king the other day, and what are the chances that he has the same birthday as the Queen? Because I do believe we celebrated the Queen's birthday the year before. Uh, Michael Cooney, welcome to Socially Democratic. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Um, we officially celebrated the King's birthday, but uh, I think most people just celebrated the uh, the day off and the penalty rates, honestly. Well, I'd hope so. In fact, uh, I had to go to fly to Brisbane uh, for work on uh, Monday afternoon, and I was sort of going, oh, God, I've got to you know, go do work on a public holiday. And I was like, you know what? It's the King's birthday. Who gives a shit? You know, I'll take another day off somewhere else that will commemorate something else more meaningful than uh, Prince Charles or King Charles, where his name is. Look, I wanted to talk to you. I haven't, we actually haven't done, I don't think we've ever done a podcast on the Republican movement, the Australian Republican movement. And obviously, you know, with a surname like Donnelly, I uh, 
it, you want to see a resident as president. It's been a long time between drinks. 1999 was when we did have the referendum uh, to uh, decide wh- <coughs> whether or not we wanted to become a, uh, a republic. In fact, that's the last referendum we've had. And it's interesting that we're obviously going through this referendum at the moment for voice. Uh, these things don't come along very often. So I wanted to get you on the show and just get a sense about how things are going within the Republican movement um, and where you see the campaign going uh, in this sort of cluttered field. But before we uh, – cluttered field of issues, I should say. But before we do that, I want to learn a bit more about your own background. Like, How the hell did you become to be involved in, uh, in the ARM? Um, well, mostly my involvement started through childhood. So, um, you know, raised in that Irish Catholic sense where <laughs> there was only one royal family and they weren't uh, English. Um, and so just raised on the, the Irish traditions um, of republicanism, which really set um, my fervor in it. Um, my old man worked uh, for the Australian Republic movement as well. So I got to go to all the events. Um, I think my first event, I was 14 years old. Um, and really been a really big proponent of it ever since. Um, the ARM as an organisation has elections. Um, you put yourself forward as a candidate, write a mission statement, um, and then if the people like you, they choose you. Um, and so I was voted in as our youth convener. Um, since then, just been setting up Republic clubs on different universities, doing a lot of advisory work for the ARM um, on our board, trying to tell them um, where youth issues come into it, um, whether or not messaging works properly, whether or not our campaign structure works, um, and generally just trying to give as much of an overview from a youth perspective as possible. You said you've been raised in this sort of um, Australian Republican tradition. Uh, can you th- recall moments uh, in your childhood that shaped those opinions? You know, you don't. We don't necessarily. I know that you've got no choice in your football team. I think you're following Collingwood basically because you're yeah. all into it. But certainly in politics, you know, you don't have to do the things that your parents mm. do, right? These are the values that are important to you. Where are there moments where along that journey you thought that it was important that we should aspire to have our own person as a head of state as opposed to an, an agrarian German monarch? <laughs> um, I think mostly it was that ingrainedness. And then as sort of issues facing First Nations people and like a real reckoning of like the original sin of colonization in Australia. So when I started to realize that it was a much more broader scope than just, I was raised Irish and therefore I should be a Republican, mm. um, kind of got to let me see a lot more of the wider perspective and angle on it. Um, and just having lots of conversations, um, with people who really hate the monarchy for a lot of good reasons. Um, and a lot of conversations with people who don't just necessarily hate the monarchy, but are just ambivalent towards it because it just doesn't represent them like we're a massively uh, multicultural country now uh in a way that we were still in 99 but now it's even more so the case so you know talking to people who had their own republic day so lots of my friends um have indian descent or international students from india and watching them celebrate their republic day and what that means to them as their nation um was also another massive uh opening point um seeing paul kelly perform at an event in 2016 um, for the Republic movement as well. It was pretty good, kind of solidified it for me. Um, yeah, those are the main ones, just like a slow progression um, as well, just that kind of generational divide of it's never been a present thing in my life ever. Like the monarchy and like queen and country has never been a thing for most young people in Australia. Um, 
I know, like, I hear stories of how people used to have to pledge allegiance to the Queen in school or sing some songs about it, all completely foreign to me. Um, just it, it's never been a thing that's been needed for me to have, like, that connection with the monarchy, and I think a lot of young people feel the same. I mean, that was my question, and I, I am conscious of asking this question uh, of, of you as, and to, not to imply that you are the spokesperson for all young people. But I do find it interesting uh, that in in uh, in an environment, a political and social environment they're in right now in Australia, there are so many competing interests, problems that need to be solved. We, I get a sense that suddenly a lot of young people are very motivated by climate change and all of those student strikes were a great indication of young people getting organised and using their feet to you know fight for change. Uh, I kind of felt since 1999. The, the, the notion of an Australia of Australia becoming a republic really kind of got pushed down the priority list, right? But, you know, you're a young person. Can you give me some sense about the importance of this to young people in Australia? Today? I think, you know, when you're talking about there being lots of different things on like the political diet for young people and just in general, totally agree. But, you know, some of those values actually run pretty similar on most of those things, like about equality, about justice, about fairness, um, those things kind of string through all those issues that are really important to young people. Um, so like climate change, that's about it being unfair that people in the future are going to be living in a worse world, one that they didn't create. Um, and when you look at things like social justice issues um, on gay marriage was a big one, and then also um, on The Voice, something that young people are more in favour of, it's that same thing of like those Australian values of fairness and justice. Um, I think the Republic is something that a lot of young people are undetermined on at the moment. Like it has broader support than it has um, like negative attention towards it, but it's not something that's really hitting the channels that young people are listening to. You know, there was a lot of talk about the coronation, like heaps, um, and a lot of talk about the coverage of it, like people are very critical of the ABC's coverage of it. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of talk about it, but a lot of those channels aren't really things that young people are tuned into. So it is kind of above the heads of younger people at the moment. Um, and it's really on us as like Australian Republicans to try and meet people where they're at um, and kind of try to create some of the political will for it. I have a lot of faith in young people. They're very optimistic. Australians are pretty optimistic generally. Um, and when you have conversations with younger people about political issues that are important or not even important to them yet, but strike to their values, you know, it's not hard to get them on board. Uh, you referenced the coronation there before, and I guess this question is more broadly not just about um, the the opinions of young people when it comes to Australia becoming a republic, but even just more broadly the broad conversation across the country. Um, events like the coronation, even t- TV shows like The Crown, I, I wonder what that does to... Uh, reintroduce a debate around whether or not we should continue as a constitutional monarchy or whether we should actually start to sever our ties and look at the idea of becoming a republic. From your actual work, what are you noticing in these moments within the sort of the cultural zeitgeist that is, is that, is that impacting the conversation? Is it in a good way for us or is it actually making? Yeah, it's like, it's really increasing like membership in the Republic movement has grown as a result of these. Um, people who previously haven't been that engaged getting engaged. 
um, people who have previously been engaged, but like you said, um, after 99 or even after the failed uh, Labor election in 2019 where Bill Shorten had made promises for a referendum on a republic, like when that failed as well, like obviously a lot of people, passionate Republicans, got really downtrodden by that. Um, But with like an election of the new Labor government, there's a commission, uh, there's like a commitment to referendums and constitutional change and an assistant minister of a republic. So I think along with things like, you know, the Prince Andrew absolute ridiculous scandal going on there, um, things like the Crown, things like the coronation um, and like the death of Queen Elizabeth are like massive contributing factors to why there's a resurgence. Um, And we've got a whole new board of people in the Australian Republic movement too that are like re-energised and refreshed and doing lots and lots of good work on it. Um, Yeah, it has been a big engagement. We've seen lots of growth in pretty much every metric that you can see um, as a result of all the things that you're talking about. I think especially the big ones were stuff like, um, you know, the Prince Andrew thing is just ridiculous, that entire debacle. Um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, like just there's been so many scandals surrounding it and a lot of Australians are asking themselves, why are we attached to this? Like, I thought we were our own country. Uh, I thought we were an independent nation. Um, and a lot of people just asking them that, themselves that question. I um, was in Brisbane uh, for the last couple of days and visiting some um, MPs in Parliament and one of them was um, just talking about having, because obviously Queensland's a big state, and a lot of the a lot of the MPs, well, all the MPs had to return back to Parliament and swear allegiance to the King, to the new monarch. So you know, MPs are flying in from far north Queensland, like a big journey, just for a twenty minute session in Parliament to swear allegiance. And they were just talking about how I mean, they're all obviously Republicans, but they were just talking about how ridiculous this was. And I think you've even heard about stories like all the police had to swear allegiance yep. to the like I think just, a lot of people in the defense force as well um are also compelled to do that um you know <laughs> it's funny you say that that's actually when you asked before about the things that really turned me on to republicanism that was actually one of the things and i'm glad you brought it up because i did forget about it just realizing that our parliamentarians are either swearing allegiance to someone else as their first act or lying on an oath <laughs> as their first act. Like, those are their two choices, and that just does not fit the Australian identity or culture of equality and mateship and looking out for each other to swear allegiance to someone else in a different country or lie to everyone who just voted for you. Um, the, I was having a, a debate with someone the other day about whether or not the Crown was... I'm going off topic a little bit here, but, you know, um, whether the Crown, the TV show on Netflix is a good thing for the paints the Royals in a good light or a bad light. The per- the, I was arguing that I think it actually d- paints them in a good light. It's um, I know that it's been like, I think the Royals have asked, they're not pleased with it. And they've asked the producers to put some sort of thing at the end or at the start saying, this is a dram- fictional dramatization. <laughs> uh, so they're clearly not pleased with it, but you know how sometimes you can frame something that's really, really shit but frame it in such a way that kind of covers over a bunch of cracks to make them not look as shit. And in mm. doing so, you're actually helping the brand. I feel like that's what the crown is doing. Whereas a lot of other people <laughs> think that, it, no, no, it's making the rules look out to be, you know, out of touch, mm. out, uh, outdated, racist, sexist. And I'm going, oh, I don't know if that's completely coming through. But anyway, I want to get your thoughts on that. I know this is obviously what I hear to talk about. I think about. that, you know, podcast, but I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. I think with like shows like that, they kind of enshrine it more so into the pop culture. I think it just kind of pushes people further wherever they were. Um, 
Like, if someone was really hugely in favor of the monarchy, they're going to love that sort of dramatization of it. And if someone's like a passionate Republican, they're going to look at it through their own lens. Um, I think those sorts of things that do have like a fictional lens to them in ways, like I know it's not entirely accurate and there are parts of it that are obviously true as well. Um, but those things will just kind of push people further down, whichever way they're going. I think more so the the outside things that don't happen on the show, like I said, just those scandals that happen um, outside of it, they kind of hit the press in a different way, probably are going to be like more impactful. Um, but I should ask more people what their opinions on Crown are because <laughs> no, it, okay. I, it's a bit of a curveball. I wasn't expecting it. But the, uh, you're right, though. It is like culturally significant. Um, but I think I don't know how many people are like going to base their views off of it. But, I mean, if people aren't even engaged in – I would imagine that if you did, and you probably have an idea about this, if you were to survey Australians right now, younger Australians probably don't know who exactly is our head of state. If you gave them a multi-choice, I reckon a lot of them would select the Prime Minister, right? Mm. Um, or don't know the role of the Governor-General and, 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 and whatnot and the powers that exist within our constitution. From what, like, the research that we've done, and, like, that's been a big thing, the ARM hasn't been dormant in the past few years, like, where there's been less of a campaign. Um, we've just been doing things that have been useful, like doing lots of research into finding out which demographics do we need to target, which ones we don't, what do people think, what do people like hearing, what do they not like hearing, and, like, like I said before, meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, people know, like, younger people know the Governor-General is the head of state and that the Prime Minister isn't a president. But they don't really know, as like you said, how much that really entails or like why the biggest question we get out of is like, why is this relevant? Like, why does it matter that the governor general is the head of state and not the prime minister? Like, why is this something that we should care about is most of it. Um, So I I honestly don't even think most people would make that connection between watching Crown and then looking at um, like our system of government that we have, Um, you know. People see the king as the king of England and not the king of Australia, even though he is the king of Australia. Um, so it paints the British royals probably in a negative light, but from you know the conversations I've had and like a lot of the research that we've done, um, painting the royals in a negative light isn't how we're going to become a republic. It's going to be about talking about the values that we have as a country, you know, writing our future, you know, letting every history's page like advance Australia's fair is going to be the main thing that pushes us forward. Is there not a concern, though, that um, certainly whilst Chuck's the king, uh, that uh, this is probably a good thing for the Republican movement, but then when uh, his son, is it William and Kate, take yeah. over, uh, that clearly they're, they appear anyway from, and I really don't pay all attention to this sort of stuff, but certainly even as, a, as an outsider looking in, they seem to be a whole lot more popular amongst punters, right? Um, and if they um, send to the throne... They're less ugly... No, like, no well, he's pretty bald. Not there's anything wrong with him. <laughs> he's pretty bald. Um, yeah, like, you know, they don't have the sausage fingers, but for the most part, I genuinely think it is like uh, an Australia going its own way, regardless of who the monarch is. Like, it is like Australian republicanism is a story about a modern Australia not so much breaking away from its like British roots or British past, but reconciling with how we became where we are now and doing the necessary things in our you know country's constitution to be able to pave a way forward i don't think will or kate becoming the king and queen would have much effect on it i think what did have a big effect was elizabeth no longer being the queen that i think is a lot more significant she was the queen for such a long time you know she didn't really offend that many people 
Um, and a lot of that monarchy or like monarchism that was baked into Australian society was baked around her. So, you know, the older generations that sang uh, Queen and Country and that had more of a connection to the monarchy, their connection was to a monarch. Like they were Elizabethans for the most part. Um, whereas now for the next generations that are coming through, not only do they not have that connection to the monarchy as a system, but they don't have a monarch that they feel any connection to as well. One of the arguments that was run at the time of the 1999 referendum from the constitutional monarchist campaign was that is that the monarchy presents some um, stability for the mm. way that we are governed. Uh, I'm wondering, with some of the things you've mentioned before, Prince Andrew, uh, the things that have been reported in the media over sort of the fallout with um, the, the the other kid, um, what's his name? Uh, Henry? No, what's his name? Who's the redhead Harry. one? Harry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Clearly, I've done my research on this on this family, <laughs> um, Harry. Um, that I wonder if that starts to undermine that argument if and when we go back to this campaign and start to have this conversation about you know because I'm assuming they're going to say it's the it's the it's not the people it's the institution that gives us stability, but yet these institutions are filled with people that hand it onto each other based on their bloodline and nothing else. I mean. A, what are we thinking about in terms of actually using this as an opportunity to say, hey, this isn't as stable as there is just as crazy as every, every other yeah. family in Australia. Why are we letting them run out, be the head of, head, of, head of our state? Well, frankly, they have proven themselves to be much crazier. I think that's the main thing. So like that was like, a, even in 99, that's a tired argument. Like when you look at the actual history of like the British monarchy, like you'd hardly call it stable, but you know, their stability was Queen Elizabeth lived for a long time and that's about it. Um, they have like the English family, like the English royal family have shown to be a totally unstable institution. Um, it's been a lot more so I think with like the more freedom that media has now. Um, you know, tabloids have always been a thing, um, but now that kind of stuff is more plastered around social media and there are more opportunity for leaks to come out of whatever like institution employees they have in the monarch. Like, the people that clean the like carpets or whatever that probably all wear suits. Um, those kind of places do leak a lot. And yeah, we do hear about all the craziness. So the stability argument doesn't really add up. I think even before that, the stability argument doesn't add up. Like, as you just said, you know, you've got people flying in from far North Queensland who have to like sign their allegiance to the monarchy again. You know, now we have another older monarch. Like if he dies, our country just has to stop, do another mourning period for someone who, you know, King Charles has said he doesn't even particularly care about being the King of Australia. So that we do another mourning period for that and then stop our system so that people can swear allegiance to the next one and, you know, vice versa and over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it's not stable. I don't, I don't think anyone really buys that anymore. Let's turn to, uh, let's, um, well, I think we've done our royal bashing enough. That's 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about actually the Republican movement. Um, you mentioned before that you have been quietly working away in this in the background doing things, uh, you know, since '99. Talk to us about the where is the movement right now? What kind of shape is it in? Both from it mm. is it campaign ready? Um, you know, where is it in terms of its leadership, its activists? You talked about you know recruitment. I just want to get a sense of you know what does the movement look like right now. Well, we've got like two new co-chairs in Craig Foster and Nova Paris. And, you know, they're both like amazing advocates that are very well-known people that do an incredible job in their roles. 
Um, you know, they're people who have recently joined the board um, at the same time that I did, where we just had like a, a major change um, in our leadership and sort of in our structure as well. Um, just because, you know, the last group had done such a great job in setting up our research and um, fundraising. Um, and now we are going to that next stage. Like if uh, Albanese wins again, like he's said that we're likely to have a republic referendum and now is about getting campaign ready, um, delivering messaging that works for people, um, building a ground game, you know, having a volunteer structure in place and really just like those steps in having a very prepared referendum team um, when that time does come. Um, so that's basically been most of what it is. Um, building support, getting financial contributions, um, yeah, having a good structure. There, were, there was always the criticism of the uh, movement in the 99 campaign that it was very Sydney-centric. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of well-to-do kind of, you know, socialites were basically bankrolling the whole program and it really didn't mm. seem to get beyond that um like i mean in victoria it didn't even we didn't straight sorry straight victoria didn't even vote in favor of the republic and this was one of our strongholds where we assumed that being a very progressive state that it would get up and it, i don't know i only missed out by a couple of votes but still it didn't get up here um mm. what efforts are there what lessons is, has the has the movement as an institution learned from 1999 that they're trying to address going forward and setting yourselves up for the next crack at it i think having like more like national figures as a part of it, like Craig and Nova. Um, we've got a lot of people on the board that have like, you know, national recognition and experience in a lot of places. Um, you know, as like the resident, like young person in the group, I try not to think about 99 that much. Um, I think that when a lot of people go to vote, especially my generation, they're not going to be thinking about 99. Um, I actually wasn't born yet. Um, <laughs> That's right. uh, it was a few years, it was a few years until I was going to be born um, before, uh, after that referendum, I mean. Um, and you know, the way that I've kind of thought about it and the way that someone explained it to me was when the Collingwood board discussed the 2023 action plan, they're not talking about losing the 19, whatever grand final, like it's a different world that we live in. Sure. Like we can learn things from it, but you also really, especially in the Republic crowd, there's a lot of talk about 99. Um, we're a totally different country from 99, different people, you know, 18 year, like 17 year olds in 1999 are older people now with all respect to those listening who exist in that group. Um, I just don't think it makes that much sense to spend too much time worrying about 99. I think, you know, for a group, our resources should really, and our mindset should be focused on what we can do with the information that we have going forward. I think as well, like a more national media and a more social media universe we live in now I'm not quite sure how anything really could be seen as Sydney centric when, you know, if something's on Facebook, it's the same, whatever state that you're watching it in. Um, I, I have heard those things before. Um, our CEO is based in Adelaide, um, you know, Craig and Nova, like always going all over the country. I'm sure they own a house somewhere, but I've definitely noticed there's been a really big effort to engage people um, where they're at and where they are is all over Australia. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
you uh, by telling us that you weren't born at the last referendum. Certainly, there's a whole group of people listening to this show right now are feeling much, much older right now, <laughs> myself included. Um, the the model was a big debate. I, I do, and I, I know you're not thinking about 1999, but I'm also conscious of the ways in which we can not fall into the same traps that we did last time. The model was an issue, right? Because there was a big divide between the the, the leadership or, or the, those involved in the in the Republican movement, whether we should have a direct election president or whether we should uh, have a, a president elected by two thirds majority of the, the federal parliament. Uh, and it, we split in the end. And obviously the field clearies of this world went out and helped the conserv the conservatives the uh, the um the the constitutional monarchists where are we on a model how are we going to resolve this going forward well the arm has an endorsed model um the choice model where essentially state and territory governments elect or like nominate one person each and then the federal government nominates three people each and then that's put to a vote across the nation um, you know, again, one of those things that the ARM has been doing in sort of the down period in between, you know, rises in momentum is developing a model that is one that can get voted. Yes. Um, one that w- people will support. Um, I think, you know, on the 99 referendum, there was a government in place that didn't really want it to succeed. Um, which, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about what other people have told you, told me, I mean, um, obviously I wasn't there, um, but that's what I've been told is that, you know, I think it was the Howard government really didn't want a referendum to succeed and picked a question that would split people. Um, ultimately, I think if it is a Labor government that does put forward a referendum question, it won't be one specifically designed to split the movement and hurt the chances of it winning. Um, but a choice model is one that we have seen will get broad support and, you know, when we speak to you know, assistant minister for the Republic um, and generally people in the government that want to have a successful referendum, we tell them, you know, this is what we think is going to work and this is our backup for it. Um, and what about um, the, the other sort of argument that would be pushed against it is uh, the, what type of president, what powers does this president mm-hmm in this model have and obviously we have different examples of republics around the world in the united states where it's very codified and uh, different branches of government uh, but also we have models like israel or ireland where they're very much just a figurehead bit similar to our governor general but they're directly elected from the people um, where where are uh, where's it where is the movement on those kind of issues that we address those or is that something that needs to be just kind of thrashed out the like almost consensus, which you rarely ever get in like an activist group, um, is that like we don't want a Trump president. We want uh, like a head of state that functions as a head of state that is picked by Australian people. Um, like essentially, yeah, replacing the governor general with someone who's picked by Australians is like what is not only like wanted within the movement, but that's what people want outside the movement as well. Um, you know, Australians generally speaking don't really like politicians that much don't really like this sort of, you know, super educated, think they know better than everyone else kind of shtick. Um, and I think, you know, for a Republican um, head of state to be elected, I think they would have to demonstrate that as well. Um, for those who uh, are uh, thinking about uh, voting for a republic but they're uncertain, what's your research told you in terms of, um, first of all, what is the demographics? broadly speaking, that are unsure about it? And what are the things that would switch their vote? 
I think, like, especially younger people are probably, like, the biggest undecided demographic. Um, And then you have, um, just from, like, a lack of information, and it hasn't really been in the political digest for a while. Um, And then I think, like, another large group of undecided voters um, are women as well. So, like, young people and sort of women under 55 are actually like they're the people that are becoming the most relevant in politics at the moment and you're seeing that in a lot of results that are happening like women were massively impactful um in the last election especially like going away from the liberal party um and younger people too are like getting greens elected um so when you look at that like it's not really surprising that this is like the new demographic that is like needing to be listened to by anyone that wants to make change in australia Um, and broadly speaking like I think that's a, a good thing. Like it's a less um, dominated space by one sort of idea or identity. Um, you know, the sort of older university educated male has been the most important person in politics and deciding what happens in Australia for a really long time. Um, but now we're seeing younger people and especially women getting more involved in these decisions and being you know the, the place that people need to go to get support. Um, in terms of like what do these groups want to hear um, and what they resonate with, um, it's just like Australian values, telling them or explaining to them or having conversations, being like our current system of government doesn't reflect the values that you hold. And that's you know almost always true when you're speaking to those undecided groups. If someone's like a massive supporter of the monarchy, they're not in that undecided group and they're not someone who you know I believe really holds those true Australian values that we really pride ourselves on. Um, I think as well, like larger like multicultural groups as well um, who weren't, as involved in the last referendum that are like larger percentages of Australian population or another undecided group. For the most part, like people are coming from places with republics, like without kings. So like you've got India as like a big place, like um, Pakistan, China, like these are places that don't have uh, monarchs. And so they're generally in favour of a republic, but also people come to Australia because of the way that it is um, and how they see Australia. Like, you know, those groups are less likely to want to sort of shake the boat a bit and kind of change things. And so just reassuring people that this makes the place that you came to more Australian, like you get to be a part of this, you know, your kids could be the head of state. Um, This makes Australia more reflective of what you came here for and what what you can bring to Australia as well. Um, Those are the biggest groups. When you talk about Australian values though, Michael, I mean, that's pretty broad. We could, you can frame Australian values both in a way that can support the arguments you're putting, or indeed it can be used in a way that supports uh, maintaining the status quo, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but when you really look at the things that are more culturally significant, um, that you know, when people think of Australia, they think of mateship, they think of you know, unity, they think of you know, this is a, a multicultural society, um, it's a progressive society. When you really look at the things that make us who we are, they do lean towards republicanism and they definitely don't stand for um, a septuagenarian person who's been, you know, never voted in, came through their family lineage. Like these are not things that really reflect Australians who, you know, um, want to have a go at it and believe that if they work hard, they can actually achieve something. Um, for the most part, like when we tell people or ask conversations and say, you know, are you aware of the fact that your child can never be the head of state and that only one person's child can be? Um, that usually gets people thinking a bit about you know, the system that we currently have. Australian values is a pretty broad thing. Like, you know, you could frame it in such a way that supports the argument for the Republican movement 
that, that, that you know, Australian values means we should have a, a resident as a president, but at the same time, you could also use it in a way that suggests that the status quo is also um, an Australian value. I think, yeah. you know, the biggest thing to push back on that is this, like, principle of fairness. It's not fair that there's a monarch in another country that ultimately decides um, a lot about this country. They're, you know, technically the commander-in-chief, you know, those sort of symbolic things. But it is just like, do we want a system of government that reflects our principles of fairness, equality, of unity and mateship? Um, and, you know, when you have those conversations with people, they tend to agree that, yeah, it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. It's outdated. Um, it's not, you know, a progressive thing that we're doing. It, it's not something that is riding Australia in the right direction. Um, it's not part of our future. Um, you know, we're an optimistic country full of very optimistic people for the most part. I think most Labor people I talk to are always pessimistic, but it's what keeps us fighting. Um, but, you know, when you speak to normal people, um, they're very optimistic and they trust Australians to pick the person to do the right job. How important is uh, the success of a referendum built upon uh, consensus across the party political divide? Obviously, in in, uh, in previous referendums, um, we found that when you can't get bipartisan support from the centre-left and the centre-right, that it, you, you struggle to get a referendum uh, up. Uh, and mm. we, Historically, we've actually, I don't know what the stats are, but I I remember it was like only eight referendums have got up, or eight percent of referendums have got up, or something something low, like that. So you're already up against it in the first place. Uh, in the '99 campaign, it, they they really, even though Howard was obviously against it, Pickerstow was in support of it, and you could see that there was a lot of wrangling from behind the scenes to try and get this consensus amongst people from both the centre left and the centre right to be able to go out there and campaign to the public. Is is a lot of that stuff going on behind the scenes at the moment? We've got like um, these like parliamentary friendship groups set up in pretty much every state um, and federally as well, where it is like a, a bipartisan issue and bipartisan support is extremely important. Um, you know, even though we've got like majority Labor governments everywhere in Australia right now, um, except for Tasmania, soon we'll get them. Um, but as like that, those come in through like preferential votes. It's not like 51% of people vote Labor and we can just have someone from the Labor Party stand up and say, we need a referendum to pass and this is why and everyone's just going to follow suit. Um, I think we're looking at it with the voice campaign right now where there is some bipartisan support, but it is being attacked from the left and it is being attacked from the right and it's having like a serious impact. Um, you know, it just muddies the waters. Um, you know, one thing that I've been seeing from this voice referendum in particular is you know, no matter what you try to do, if you try to do good, um, if you try to have like steady progress that makes people's lives better, you're always going to have people that are going to step in and say it's not good enough or say it's you know too bad. Um, and having bipartisan support can assist in stopping that, but it's always going to happen no matter what you do. Like we've seen the Liberals really splinter on the voice um, and, you know, we saw Senator Thorpe resigned from the Greens as a result of it as well. So, I mean, I, she said there were other things as well, but I think her main point was that the Greens were too in favour of the voice. Um, so when, when you look at that, bipartisan support, yeah, it's important, but it's you're never going to get it guaranteed. Um, and even if you do have, like, some level of bipartisan support on really contentious issues, people are going to split themselves off and become not a part of the bipartisanship anymore um, and then set up their own parties against you. 
How, how much involvement or interest do we see from um, other parts of the left? So therefore, I mean, the, the Greens Party in particular. I mean, how active are they within the, the rank and file or even at leadership levels for the, the um, ARM? Uh, like, not too, too involved. Like, you know, we generally get broad support from the left wing. Um, you know, people that really focus on social justice issues uh, tend to look at a republic through um, the lens of its impact on First Nations people, um, which is also, like I said earlier, how I really started to see the value in it as well. And it is one of those things where it is more of a symbolic thing where having, you know, First Nations parliamentarians swear allegiance to the Crown that colonised their land is just really beyond the pale. It's egregious. And I don't think that really there's much to mount from a left-wing position saying that a republic with a choice model, I don't see how you can attack that from a left-wing perspective, really. You could attack it from a populist perspective, but we know that populism kind of swings whichever way it leads. You did uh, reference uh, the voice referendum in your remarks just before. I, I am interested in, in getting a sense of uh, how the ARM is viewing this referendum as a mm. as um, uh, instructing the way that you're going to run a campaign. These referendums, we don't have a lot of them, right? So mm. when they come along, um, it's an interesting insight into seeing how the voting population behave. What, what can you share with us in terms of um, how you're treating or looking at the voice referendum and how that will instruct what you do in the future? I think on like the principle itself and like the actual question and like does the Australian Republic movement support like a voice to parliament? Like we do 100%. Um, and we also see it as like a really necessary part of what we're trying to do as a movement as well, which is create an Australian identity that, you know, cleanses that original sin and pushes us forward as a nation and rewrites our identity as one that fits us. And First Nations people are like a crucial part of Australia's history. And what we're trying to do really matches up with what they're trying to do as well. Um, I think what we are seeing is like, you know, it's a campaign that's running into struggles. We're looking at just how the media can be just so vicious and anti-Australia when it comes to their reporting on things. Like it is just like a, a stark reminder of the media ecosystem in Australia. It does not suit Australian people. It's not there to, you know, benefit Australian people. Like it's for the most part, if it's not for profit, um, it's for purpose that is anti-Australian, in my opinion, at least. Um, so we are learning some things from it. Um, you know, there's a lot of chatter about how the voice campaign's not going well and, like, there's a lot of pessimists from Labor people, like there always is, like I said before. Um, but I think for the most part, like, it's a campaign with a lot of merit that one issue I think that they might have run into is it's quite decentralised in a lot of ways. Like you're getting a lot of support from like uh, corporations and sporting codes and um, there is like a spokesperson for The Voice as well. But I think in some ways it is lacking ground game um, and that might have just come from, you know, an enthusiastic uh, approach to The Voice where, you know, it was one of the first things that Albo said when he got elected and there was a bit of a lull period after that where, you know, we knew A Voice was coming um, and there just wasn't really that much to back it up in the media sense, like people kind of stopped talking about it and the no campaign really took that time to rally, um, figure out what they wanted to say about it. And, you know, they've just been throwing mud in the water ever since. So there are things to learn from it. Um, you know, a centralized campaign does really benefit people um, and having people door knocking and, you know, from the very start that probably should have been going on. 
It is an interesting conundrum for a referendum because in a political campaign, you do have a leader who's the the spokesperson for the campaign, generally speaking. Obviously, you know, ministers or shadow ministers and that would get up and do the, the, a lot of their press work as well. But the spearhead, the message carrier is always the leader. In a referendum, you don't tend to have that person. And I'm just wondering about how the Republican movement would um, carry that message. Would they have a, a particular spokesperson or spokespeople that are designated? Obviously, you've mentioned that uh, former Socceroo um, and sort of all-around, you know, good guy, humanitarian, uh, Craig Foster, uh, and Novus Paris, former senator um, and Olympian, uh, now the co-chairs of the movement, um, is that something that the the movement starting to sort of settle in and go right? We actually need to get some people that carry a bit of kudos in the in the wider public, and then they are going to be our spokespeople to carry this message through. It's not just obviously having people being spokespeople. You've got to have all the other channels that you want to talk to people on as well. But I'm wondering about how you get over that because I thought that in '99 it was a bit that there was a bit of a vacuum in terms mm. of who actually was delivering the messages about why you need to support this uh, this this uh, vote for a republic. Yeah, like we do have like more like dedicated spokespeople that um, have a lot of experience in media. And I think sort of their biggest benefit um, is that like, you know, they are like Craig's not a politician. I think he has that going for him in a lot of ways where you know, he's not a partisan guy, like he's just an advocate. And I think a lot of people have a lot of respect for that. Um, and, you know, with Nova, like she's just such an overwhelmingly beloved person in so many of these spaces. Um, she's a politician, but, you know, there's something different about Nova. Like She's not like your average politician. Um, and like they're both people that you can't even come close to questioning their allegiance to the country either. Um, they're not like they're both people who have served Australia like on the world stage um, in ways that have been like really successful. And, you know, they're real true patriots. Um, and I think that goes a long way. Um, also appealing to like different groups of people as well. Our board is like very, very diverse. Like we have people of all different ages, all different backgrounds, all different experiences. And the group is really, really, really reflective of Australia, um, which is awesome. And I think it's, you know, pushed a lot of our success that we've been doing is we have like broad discussions with a lot of different input, but also clear leaders at the same time. Um, so we give our input, everyone on the board um, to our co-chairs and they've, like fairly take it all up and kind of go out and present from there. Um, a lot of people want to hear from them and they have a lot of opportunities to speak as well. Um, I'm sure if Craig wanted to come onto the podcast, you wouldn't have told him no. And I think the same thing goes with Nova. And I think a lot of people have that experience where doors open for those guys when they want to be there. Yeah. Right. The, um, no, there's nothing better than uh, test, testing a group of people uh, for a campaign than a campaign. And obviously we have the referendum for the voice right now. Is this an opportunity where, your volunteer base can get out there and actually campaign in a live setting that is a referendum type campaign. Well, it isn't a referendum type, it is a referendum campaign uh, ahead of your campaign that hopefully will come in the, in the near future. Like, mm. I mean, what, what's, what, what's the, what's the, the activist base of the ARM doing in, in this voice campaign? I think like, you know, people that are activists in the ARM have sort of already kind of made their own ways if they're in favour of a voice, which like, you know, almost everyone we speak to is, um, you know, they've kind of already made their own ways. We, like the ARM hasn't done like a deliberate push to like, you know, go to any of like Yes23 and like send like his or our ARM people. Um, like our people that have interested in it um, have been taking up those skills. And I think it's also 
not just for the activist base, but for like broader Australia, kind of a lesson in referendums as well. Um, it's been a while. 99 was the last one and it was the Republic one. And so it's just like a refresher of like how these things work, um, you know, why the constitution needs to be changed. And it is like a teaching point of this is how you're supposed to run a campaign. And there's going to be a lot of lessons learned from the voice campaign. Um, from like a Republic perspective, it's really important that it succeeds. Uh, you know, it's going to be crucial to like an, the Albanese government's legacy. Um, if it does fail, like it will be something that I don't think any government is going to want to push a second referendum um, if their first attempt failed. So that's going to be something that's really important as well. Um, in terms of like how the ARM can like assist in the voice campaign, it's been something that we've talked about a lot. I think for the most part, like it's not like it's something that we agree with, but it's also not our fight. We don't really want to step on the toes of people that are like have put their life's work into this. Mm. Um, you know, I think one thing it could be seen as like tokenistic of like, oh, the Republic really needs a voice to succeed. You know, let's kind of run in there and kind of try and do it ourselves because, you know, this means a lot to us as well. So really trying to avoid stepping on toes, um, but still supporting. And, you know, if they ever need our help, we're like able to give it to them and all those sorts of things. But I think certainly what's coming from the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community is that they want us to walk with them. We're not going to run the campaign, but certainly in the end, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had with a lot of non-Aboriginal people about why they need to support this, right? And that's going to require thousands of volunteers. And, uh, you know, you guys are an organisation. You have an organisational structure. You have lists. You have lists of volunteers. Is there an opportunity there, I wonder? I mean, you don't, you know, this is just me sort of thinking out aloud here, right, my organiser hat on. But, you know, if I was running or working on the voice campaign, I'd be I'd be calling up you guys. I'd be calling up the Labor Party, the Greens, the Liberals and saying, right, you, give me your organisational capacity into this campaign because, you know, we need it. Yeah, and, like, I agree with that. Like, the... I think every referendum campaign needs as many people as possible. Um, and yeah, we've been encouraging people to get involved like in their own capacity where like we support it. Um, we've told our members that we support it. Um, we've set up Indigenous advisory councils as well as part of the ARM to um, start those conversations that you're talking about as well. Um, those are chaired by NOVA and have like a very large list of people that are like really great at giving us the advice on it. Um, so yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, last question. Uh, what's your focus uh, as in your capacity as the National uh, Youth Convener? Uh, what, is, what does your um, work look like in the next, uh, where are we, June, halfway through the year? Oh, my God. In the next sort of six, six to 12 months, what is your remit going to be in terms of being the representative of, of, of the youth? Mm. <laughs> um, I think mostly just like we get a lot of outreach from younger people to the ARM that send emails being like, hey, I go to this university. How can I get involved? Um, or like those sorts of things. Like, you know, I had one guy who sent an email who was um, a representative um, in his like New South Wales youth parliament um, and was asking like, you know, I really am a massive supporter of the public. Like what's a way that I can reach out to you guys to like put forward like a referendum when we go forward in our youth parliament um, or like set up New South Wales youth parliament as its own republic, like that sort of stuff of um, just reaching out um, that, getting people involved in the campuses, like setting up university republic clubs. And um, also, like I said earlier, just like a lot of um, giving the perspective of a younger person um, into like big broad discussion meetings about like, you know, how are we going to run like a really important campaign? I think in a lot of places, and this is like a problem broadly in politics, is there aren't enough younger people in leadership positions. Um, you don't have people that, younger people, that their voice often gets overlooked or it's not important. but 
you know, realistically, when you look at how things are trending at the moment, like the youth vote is something that's taken for granted a lot of the time. Um, and if it continues to be taken for granted, then the people taking it for granted are going to regret that eventually. Um, so yeah, just kind of advocating for young people and for their voices to be heard in this space. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, I guess it's going to come down to a question of relevancy, right? This, uh, as we sort of said at the top of the podcast, we're constantly competing with so many different campaigns in our lives. Our inboxes of emails are full of different ways in which we can donate or get involved. And I'm going to get you to do an ask in a moment as well. Um, but I mean, you know, this question of relevancy, why is it relevant now that we need to become a republic? I think now's as good a time as ever. Um, you know, as we're seeing with the voice campaign, there is an appetite for change. We've got a government that's willing to make big changes that are going to impact a lot of people's lives. We don't have Queen Elizabeth anymore. Um, we're ongoing this nation, uh, this uh, journey with First Nations people. Um, we're reconciling with us being a multicultural country. We're not a colony anymore. If we don't do it now in the opportunity that we have, um, it could be a long, long time before we get what we really deserve as Australians, which is one of our own as the head of state. So how, do you, how can someone get involved? If someone's listening to the podcast right now, all six of them, um, how can those six people uh, sign up and get involved in the Australian Republican movement? Um, just go to republic.org. Um, there's like a merch shop with lots of great stuff. That's a really good way to contribute. Um, joining the email list, um, you'll be invited to our events that we have. Um, there's like a state council that organises events in every state and territory. Um, and we have petitions that we send out. Um, and as always, you can just join and become like a financial member and have like a really good start to pushing forward in Australian Republic. Fantastic. We'll make sure we put a link in the bio for this week's uh, episode. Michael Kearney, thank you very much for coming on the show today and talking uh, all things Republic with us. We wish you and the, uh, the team the best of luck in the coming months as you build the foundations that will hopefully lead to a, re a successful referendum uh, in the not too distant future. Thanks a lot for having me, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Socially Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.